You know how it is, those of you who've seen me get into a coughing fit before while I'm preaching. <laughs> it's not pretty. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so we're talking about paper towels and all that sort of thing. If you haven't been in our new refurbished bathrooms, you'll be glad to know because we know what your answer was going to be. We've got the, those towels that you pull. Those are the coolest things. Just always damp, always feel used. That's the way to clean your hands. That's why I get sick a lot. I go looking for those. Um, all right, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles, if you would, to Esther chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. You can grab one of those. And uh, it's uh, on page 492 or 493, I'm not sure, one of those two pages. And, um, and if you're uh, looking it up in your own Bibles to the left of middle, uh, if you're using a smartphone or tablet device, we are using the NIV, the New International Version. And I, did I say there, there are ones in the seat rack in front of you? Yeah, I think I, I, think I said that. Okay. Um, we are in a series called Finding Our Way Back to God, which is a series, it's eight weeks long. We're working our way through the book of Esther uh, in the Old Testament. And, um, and so that's why we're looking at Esther chapter two. This is number two in the series. If you missed last week, I wanna encourage you to go back, really important for building blocks of where this story is going. You can go to our website and you can uh, watch it or listen to it. And uh, we're calling it Finding Our Way Back to God because there's no escaping the fact that Esther, uh, the kind of the hero of the story, and Mordecai, the other hero of the story, the two Jewish protagonists in the story, um, they are very compromised in their faith. And they are very, very far from God from, for all intents and purposes. And um, there's a sense in which their faith is no longer their lives can't really be distinguished very much from the people around them. Uh, they're in the Persian Empire, they're Jewish, they're living in exile, but they're not very different from the people around them. And um, it's a story about how they, they find their way, in a sense, back into God's will and God's purposes, uh, and to a life of at least getting moving towards a life of faithfulness. And, and really, the book of Esther, maybe more than anything, uh, is a story about how God works behind the scenes in uh, hidden ways, you might say, and, and he does it to accomplish his purposes in spite of always having to work with flawed people. So while Esther and Mordecai are, are, are very flawed, there isn't anyone in the Bible who is not a flawed person. And as believers, we, find little, we continually find ourselves uh, compromised in our faith and uh, adopting ideas and ways of life that are contrary to the way of life that God has called us to live and that we claim to live in our lives. And what we find over time is, is it's pretty easy to lose our distinctiveness as followers of Jesus and our identity as God's people, we begin to see ourselves as something other than God's people. And we are oftentimes, in fact, quite frequently, we're duped into buying into a different story of what's really, what life is really about and who we are and what is important and what is right and what is wrong. And it's not good for us. It, it undermines our ability to pass on our faith to the next generation because the next generation certainly sees it. And it impacts our witness for Christ in negative ways and it doesn't bring glory to God, which is what our lives need to be about. But it doesn't catch God by surprise. 
And we see it all throughout the scriptures. It shows us God is never caught by surprise when we, uh, when we live in ways that don't reflect him and his image in us. And we're going to be able to learn from the book of Esther how it is that when we find ourselves that way, and we always do, how it is that we can find our way back to God and to living more faithfully for him and to living a more distinct life, uh, a life marked by, by Jesus. So today we're going we're gonna to look at, at some of the ways that we actually find ourselves there so far from God, some signs uh, in a sense of, of having lost our way or that we are losing our way. And, uh, and then uh, we're going to, because when we, we know what those signs are and we start seeing them in our lives, then we have the ability to respond. And last week we said, you know, part of the response is laughing at ourselves and going, what in the world? Why am I making that so important? Because it's laughable to make that important. And then mourning because we do that. And then in the scriptural terms, repenting, changing our mind, changing our direction. And then living by faith, by trust in God. So we're going to pray, and the prayer of illumination today is based on Psalm 119, and uh, here we go. Heavenly Father, your word is the light that leads us, the truth that shines in the darkness. By your Holy Spirit, guide us, reveal yourself, and give us understanding as we seek to know you more. And may our knowledge of you direct our steps and light the way as we follow the path that you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the names, names um, and the names that people get in Scripture are, uh, play a pretty important role in their lives and in their stories. Names were very important. Naming was very important in scriptural times. Probably a lot more than today, carried a lot more freight than today, the meaning of names. But, but names still carry a certain amount of meaning in, in our time, more than we're oftentimes aware of. For, for example, Michael Jr., comedian. Many of you have seen him at the Global Leadership Summit. Maybe you've seen him live as well. Uh, he, uh, he does a lot of things with the audience, which uh, seems you know, completely spontaneous, but actually takes a lot of preparation. And in one case, this one bit he does, he, he, he asked an audience member, he, he asked him, so, so what's your name? And the audience member said, Ronnie. And this was his response, um, playing on that name and other names. He said, Ronnie, that's a cool name. That name travels. You can be a black Ronnie or you can be a white Ronnie. Some names uh, don't travel. <laughs> Some names do. A name that doesn't travel? Hmm. Anybody know a black Becky? No, you don't. Let me ask you, what about a white Shakifwa? <laughs> no, you don't. It doesn't travel. So when you see it from that perspective, you start realizing names, oh yeah, they do carry some culture with them. Uh, I have a cousin named Jesus. Does that sound weird? Well, it sounds weird in English. doesn't sound weird in Spanish. It's my cousin is, I, all my family that I know is Cuban. And so uh, his name is Jesus. And we called him Jesusito when I was a kid. And so, but when he went to college, he'd been living in the United States, he was either born in Cuba and came, immigrated very early on in his life, or was born here, I'm not sure, but he's a little older than me. Um, but 
when he got to college or when he got out of college, he changed his name. I, I can't remember if he took his middle name or if he just took on a whole new name because he felt it was dishonoring to Jesus to have the name Jesus. Well, that's an American thing. That's, a, that's a, a, an English language speaking thing. I've never heard of a person thoroughly immersed in Hispanic culture that would say uh, something like that. Uh, but for him, it had religious significance. The name had religious significance. In his book on Esther, Mike Cosper uh, recalls Jewish comedian uh, Jackie Mason, who had a bit that went like this. He said, in the United States, nobody has a Jewish name. Americans want to make sure they don't sound too Jewish. So every Jewish kid now is Tiffany, Tiffany Schwartz, Allison Ginsberg. I can't tell you what the next one is, um, because it would require too much explanation, especially for younger folks. But his last one is this. I know a kid that's named Crucifix Finkelstein. Now, of course, he doesn't know a kid named Crucifix Finkelstein. But the point these comedians are making is names still have some impact on our culture, religious impact, cultural impact. Uh, they have it. So, Mike Cosper writes in his book on Esther, he says this. He says, a Jew named Mordecai, one of the main characters in the story, a Jew named Mordecai is a bit like a Jew named Crucifix Finkelstein. I'll explain why. Mordecai is introduced in about verse 5 of our chapter today. This book, Esther, we don't know exactly when it was written or by whom, but we know it was a Jewish document. We know it was written by, by a Jew, written to Jewish people at that time. So Mordecai, today the name Mordecai is considered a Jewish name. But to the original readers, to the people around Mordecai, there was nothing Jewish about it whatsoever. The only reason it's considered a Jewish name today is because there is a Mordecai in the Bible. But in his day, and as people would read this story, there would have been a little bit of a shock of a Jew named Mordecai. Because it was like being called Crucifix Finkelstein. It is, it is a name in honor of the god Marduk, which is a Babylonian god which was also worshipped by the Persians of his day. Something else that Jews reading, observant Jews, would never have done this. It would have been like, of all the names you choose, a Persian name, you choose crucifix. You know, that's, that's the kind of idea. Something else that they would have noticed was that he was living, we're going to see in a moment, right in the middle of the power. He's living in the capital city, but he's more than in the capital. He's in the citadel. He's in the place of political power. And, and so Kasper writes, a Jew named Mordecai living in the citadel was a compromised person. And any Jewish person reading that, especially an observant Jew at that time, would have been looking at it and would have gone, uh, this, is, this is a compromised person. And the actions that he takes in this chapter confirm it. So uh, let's read the chapter and, uh, and then we'll look at some signs as to uh, how we know we're uh, kind of veering away far from God. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. So if you missed last week, if you don't know the story, uh, King Xerxes, Persian emperor, uh, banishes his wife because she won't do what he asked him to do during this big, gigantic party, a seven-day party that had followed a six-month a six party. 
Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for a beautiful young virgin for the king, for a beautiful young virgin from the king, for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young women, woman who pleases the king be made queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, son of Shimei, the son of Kish, Kish, who had been carried into exile uh, from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of the Jews. So it's recalling that it's, it's like his, uh, I don't know, um, his great-great-grandfather or great-grandfather or something like that that was brought into exile. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, which is a Jewish name, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, which is a Persian name, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her into, as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So he's a cousin, but he's probably old enough to be her father. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and, found, and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best palace place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to compete, complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for women, for the women. Six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning, return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashagaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the, tenth, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, 
for all his nobles and officials, he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. All right. What are the signs that, that uh, we are losing, uh, we're, we're losing our faith identity, we're moving away from God, we're finding ourselves maybe really far from God? The first sign is that we hide our faith. Um, or even worse, and in our culture much more common, we privatize our faith. And I'll explain in a few moments what that means as well as why it's worse. So the reality is that it's very complicated when it comes to hiding our faith. It's a, it's a complicated issue in Scripture because there are plenty of places where you can go in Scripture where people hide their faith, and it is either excused or it is uh, commended or it's kind of ignored. It's just, you know, stated. Um, so one of the clearest cases, of course, is when spies go in while the Israelites have left Egypt and they're in the wilderness, spies go in and, and disguise themselves as something other than what they are. But that, you know, you can kind of explain. Uh, another one, I'm going to skip the next two uh, slides, Chris. Uh, another one is a guy named Naaman, and I, I'm not, for time's sake, I'm not going to go into his whole story, but he is a Syrian general who becomes a follower of Yahweh, of the God of Israel, and he has a dilemma. He says, when I go back, he said, I'll never sacrifice to another God again, but when I go back, there's times when I have to go into the temple with my ruler, and he's holding onto my arm, and he bows down before the God, and I have to bow with him. Is that okay? He asked the prophet who heals him. He's, he had leprosy. And the prophet, a fiery prophet, fiery Old Testament prophet, says, go in peace. Like, that's okay. Well, you can kind of explain that one away in some ways. It becomes a little bit more difficult when you get to the New Testament and you've got a guy like Joseph of Arimathea, the guy who gave his tomb for Jesus. He was part of the council uh, that condemned Jesus, although it says he didn't vote for condemning Jesus. But it says in the Gospel of John that he was a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. And so there's, there's a like, hmm, Okay, a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. No comment. Uh, you can be a secret disciple if you're afraid that letting people know. Now, what complicates this, of course, is that Jesus seems to say other things uh, about this kind of a thing. And so Jesus is constantly telling his disciples that, listen, if you follow me, uh, your association with me is going to get you into trouble sometimes. It might even lead to your death. So here's what you need to do. You need to take up your cross and follow me. Now, we think, take up your cross. Well, you need to make some sacrifices. There was only one meaning they could have understood when he said, take up your cross. Take up your mode of execution. Because that's, they didn't have a theology of the cross at that point. Jesus has not died on a cross. All they know is that's how people die <laughs> when they're, like, hated by the government. And so he says, yeah, that's what you have to be ready. ready you be ready to, to take your cross and then he says this in Matthew 10. He says, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Okay, so much for um, hiding your faith to a certain degree. Um, at least overtly, you know, lying to cover up for your faith. But who's the first person that actually disowns him? Peter, one of his disciples. And what's the outcome? Grace and forgiveness from Jesus. Next chance Peter gets to stand up for him, he does in glorious ways. You read about it in the opening chapters of Acts. It's incredible how the change happens. 
few years later, uh, we read in Paul's letter to the Galatians, Paul has to confront, the Apostle Paul has to confront the Apostle Peter because he has, in a sense, denied what Jesus told him to do. Uh, so this, this matter is really, really complicated in Scripture. So let's not be too quick to judge Mordecai and Esther for hiding their faith. Uh, there were good reasons for them to want to hide their faith. But one of the things that you read as you read in Esther, you read it in this chapter, if you caught it, and I think most of you caught it, uh, is that they have compromised their hiddenness of their faith uh, has uh, been a part of a much larger compromise in their faith. Uh, they, it, it, it may have taken its toll on their lives because they are not living like Jews at all. And let's not excuse ourselves when we hide our faith, when we hide our faith at school or we hide our faith at work or with our friends. Um, let's not excuse that because our lives are not on the line by any means. I mean, Mordecai, maybe his life was on the line. Joseph of Arimathea, his entire life, I mean, not, not whether he would live or not, but everything else was on the line. Um, so Naaman, certainly, probably his actual life would have been on the line had he not bowed with, with his king. Now, uh, so let's not be too quick to judge at the same time. Let's be really careful about justifying when we hide our faith. And let's look at the ways that maybe we do hide our faith. Now, privatizing religion, not just hiding, but privatizing our faith is a, is a little bit of a different thing. Because when we hide our faith, it's out of fear, right? When we privatize our faith, it is, it is a, 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 different, a different thing. Privatizing faith, uh, what I mean by that is, it's a conviction that our faith is a private thing, private. In other words, it's between me and God and it's nobody else's business. Or, privatizing faith is where we don't feel that there needs to be a strong connection between what we personally believe and how we live our life in our everyday lives, at work, school, and places like that. That's privatizing faith. And um, our faith is personal, but it is never in Scripture private. I, I don't have time to develop this, but I can tell you there's nothing in Scripture. Like the hiddenness thing, you gotta go, hmm, okay, there's, there's circumstances. There are no circumstances whereby we can take our faith and say, this is a private matter, and it's just between me and God. Because scripture is just the opposite of that, constantly. You have to literally refute Jesus time and time again if you privatize your faith. And so, the diff why I say it's worse is, on the one hand, it, when we hide our faith, sometimes it's out of cowardice. We're just afraid. We're cowards. But when we privatize our faith, we're actually redefining what it is. We're playing God, and we're denying what God has said. So if you want to see a sign in your life that you're drifting far from God, and maybe you are lost spiritually, it's where once you one had, once had faith, or when you're here with other believers, you have faith. You say, I follow Jesus. But when you're out with other people, you hide it. 
or you've gone so far as to privatizing it. And so nobody knows you're a Christian because you think it's not, none of their business anyways. So this whole thing might be, the hiding faith might be complicated, but when it comes to the God of the Bible, the reality is when we hide our faith, it usually means we're far from God and we've lost our way. And we might as well admit it. All right. Um, number two. Second sign. We live by a cultural compass. Um, or to use some of the language I used a little bit earlier, we live by a different story. We have the story that God gives us. This is what your life is about. And instead, we buy a story from our culture and we adopt it and it becomes our story in which we live. So what we're talking about here, again, is assimilation, which is the big subject of last week. We talked a lot about assimilation last week and the Borg and all that sort of thing. Um, it's the great temptation for believers of any age to assimilate by adopting cultural standards, cultural values, um, especially values that, it's assimilation, we adopt cultural values that uh, are different from and opposed to, specifically opposed to Christian values, or when we adopt ethics, the rights and wrongs, that are very specifically in Scripture spoken of uh, differently what, what is right and what is wrong. Uh, this can be overt. Some people can, can come up with really uh, elaborate justifications for something they shouldn't be justifying, but most of the time our assimilation is very uh, subtle in our lives. We're not even aware of it most of the time. And, uh, and it happens all the time in our lives. Every single one of us adopts values that don't belong to Christianity but belong to our culture. Every single one of us, and we're battling this all the time. And it's one of the reasons we ought to listen to Jesus really carefully to his warning. When he says judgmentalism, don't be, a ju don't be judgmental. Now, judgmentalism, being judgmental, is where you see the faults in other people. So you might be looking out at the culture, people who are not followers of Jesus, and you're like going, can't they see where that's going to lead and how bad that is? Um, and you're doing it, you know, like, like this, you know, type of way in your heart. Um, judgmentalism is where you do that, but you don't see your own faults. And Jesus had a lot to say about that. The New Testament has a lot to say about that. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't make judgments. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't look out and say, that's anti-Christian. That's not Christ's way of living. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't have discernment. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be growing in a knowledge of what is right and wrong and pleasing to God and glorifying to him. What it means is as we make judgments, as we discern, and the Bible tells us we must do that, as we do that, we do it in humility and grace. We don't do it pointing fingers at other people. Now, one of the great values of reading Cosper's book, which I've been recommending on my blog and, and elsewhere on Esther, is that he uh, really focuses on the ways that Esther's culture is a lot like our culture, a lot of the parallels between these two cultures. And in his first chapter, he's got like seven or, or so uh, commonalities between a Persian culture and our culture, and I'm just going to go over them really quickly, uh, but I, I, I recommend um, that if you're interested in this, I'll also recommend some other resources, but I recommend the book. So one of them 
is what he calls an over-reliance on the five senses. Now, we see that in our culture, you know, we basically, uh, in a secularized culture where secularism is God, uh, and we're, you know, on this road to secularism, uh, it, it, pretty much what we see, feel, touch, smell, these, these, are, these are the only things that are real. And certainly, when we're talking to other people, that's all we should appeal to. We shouldn't appeal to God or the gods or angels or anything like that. It's a very un, uh, we've talked about this before, uh, a, a world lacking uh, enchantment. It's a new kind of world that's been developing over the last 500 years. But before that, there was always an enchanted world. Persia was an enchanted world. But when you looked at their lives, what really mattered were the five senses um, by the way that they lived. A second commonality is a rejection of an overarching story. And so we live within the story of God. It starts with creation and ends with new creation. It doesn't end, it's a new beginning, new creation. And everything in between that God is doing to redeem us and why we need redemption, that's a story. And what God wants us to live our lives and what, what's purposeful, what's truly purposeful and meaningful is all within a story because we think in stories. And God has given us a story of that in the scripture. But in our culture and in the Persian culture, you're not allowed to go into public with an overarching story. You're considered bigoted or you're considered, it, there's just a lot of, in Persian culture, it's like you can have your story. In fact, we allow everyone to have their story. But don't tell us there's an overarching story. And, um, and it's, it's very much that way in our culture and, and even though the people that are telling us that, this is, this is the irony and I don't, I don't know how to fix it. The people who are telling that have a story. And in their story, there is no overarching story. It's a dilemma. It's, 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 a, it's a difficulty living in our world. So uh, an, another characteristic is that you pay a price if you don't fit into the dominant culture. And that's becoming more so in our culture. And you can see that. Mordecai knows the price. And so he keeps his Jewishness secret. Uh, another characteristic, and we saw it last week especially with the gold couches and silver couches and everything, is frenzied consumerism. We are a consumeristic society. They were a consumerist society for those who could afford it. And uh, there's just more people in our society that can afford it in our you know, particular context. And so a frenzied consumerism. We're buying things and showing things off or showing pictures of where we've been and what we get to do and what we're able to do and all those kinds of things. It's, it's very... Um, we, we, it's how we get status and all that sort of thing. Friends in consumerism. Another one is the treatment of women. So in ancient culture, women were treated as property, as we saw with Vashti. She's a queen, but she's just, she's just Xerxes' property. In our day, uh, and in our culture, uh, women have a lot more power and strength and all that sort of thing. And yet, and Cosper develops this really well, we live in a culture where women have been pornified, he says. And you see it in every advertisement, you see it in everything. And, um, and those that are able to, uh, in certain ways, they, they, can, they can do really, really well financially and they can get all kinds of power if they cooperate with the pornified culture, if they play a, a role in that. So you can say, well, they're, they're, it's their freedom to do that. Yes, but they're rewarded richly when doing it. And that doesn't make it that much more different than the culture of the Persians. Uh, another characteristic, sexuality is unhinged from the purposes of creation. Christians go back to creation. 
to understand the meaning of sexuality. Uh, we do that because the law of the Old Testament goes back to creation. Because Jesus, when it comes to issues of sexuality, always goes back to creation. Because the Apostle Paul and the Apostles, whenever matters of sexuality come up, they always go back to Genesis 1 and 2. So there's a pattern there that's hard to, to miss uh, when they're speaking about specifics or in general. It's always hinged to creation and creation's purposes for sexuality. And uh, what you find is in our culture, in the Persian culture, is completely unhinged from that. And again, when we as Christians begin to unhinge from that, we're finding ourselves just assimilating into the culture. And then the last one is a dystopian world, and by that, uh, just to be quick, um, it's just our world is becoming more and more Hunger Game-ish, if, if you've read Hunger Games. And so there is more and more, especially at the top and at the bottom of the economic scale, there's uh, a lot that, and I mean dystopian futures and all that sort of thing, is like they write about them, they go, no. In fact, the, the lady who wrote Hunger Games is like, I'm writing about what's happening right now. It's just a little bit more extreme, but you, and we can't see it. So we need to be aware of how it is. If we're going to resist, as we talked about last week, because resistance is not futile, if we're going to resist, we need, because this is so subtle, we need to be aware of where our culture is and how it's impacting us. We really do. And if we're not aware, it just sneaks in really easily and we become very judgmental. We start looking out you know, like this and pointing at others or other Christians and we miss where it is that we've adopted cultural values. And so, uh, I don't know, in the next couple of days, hopefully, I'm going to have a, a, a blog post at my website right there that I'm, gonna, I'm just going to point you to some resources uh, that, that I've been using a lot that I think can be really helpful, mostly podcasts that you can listen to. I've just come across a new podcast. Uh, some, uh, my youngest son uh, connected me with it. So, so just think about this. Um, most of the podcasts that I'm going to point to are pretty heady. And uh, I, wouldn't, I probably wouldn't send my youngest son to those. But he brought me a podcast, uh, Babylon Bee's podcast, for example, that talked by Babylon Bee. Those guys are talking about the, the cultural issues in ways that, that uh, I think is much more broadly appealing. Less heady, a lot of humor, but, but pointed <laughs> and making a point. And I've got problems with every single one of these. I'll put them in there, you know, where, where to fall short. But here's the, here's the deal. You start becoming aware of where our culture is going. The point of that and please don't make me regret pointing you towards some, some of this stuff. Because the point is not to make you angry. The point is not for you to be shaking your fist at our culture and going, you know, this world is just going downhill. The point is not to lose faith and hope and decide, I'm never going to have children. Um, the, the point is not to find a hole somewhere and hide in it or, or just group up with other creatures. That's not the point of it. The point is not to be angry and say, we're going to take the culture back. There's nothing to take it back to that's Christian. The point is to look at ourselves and to ask, where is this seeping into the way that I respond to God, relate to God, relate to my brothers and sisters in Christ, relate to my world? It's not to get a hammer to hit people who disagree with you. It's not to, to be able to, to be wittier 
or more sarcastic or more bombastic on Facebook. That's not the point. If you, if you use it for that and you give, please, don't, I don't want to know. Please don't do it. I'll regret pointing you towards some of these things. So use them, but keep perspective. We need to know how we think, what are our underlying assumptions, so that we can see how they're impacting us. Now, an adult reading of Esther is shocking. If the first time you read Esther as an adult, and you really stop and look at what's happening here, it's kind of shocking. It's not like what we learned in Sunday school if you were a kid who went to Sunday school. Um, this, is not a beauty tr this is not a beauty contest for the king. Uh, these, these women are being lined up to go spend the night with the king and to please him. And the one that pleases him most becomes the next queen. There are possibly all kinds of things that Mordecai could have done to keep Esther from going. Send her like, to some country house if he heard in time. Or say to him, tell the king you're Jewish. He probably won't want to sleep with you. And so there was all kinds, but instead they conspired together on how to win the contest. Um, this is the story. It's a story of sex trafficking is what it is for the sake of the king. I mean, this is Jeffrey Epstein with ultimate power, with no one to hold him accountable. That's, that's what this story is about. And, um, and it's not just for women. We read about the eunuchs, right? I'm not going to go into detail, but the eunuchs are made into eunuchs to protect the harem so that the king can know that the harem is not being fooled around with by the attendants. So men are drafted into that and made into eunuchs. And that's not to mention the drafting of young men, usually poor men, to go to the front lines to wield swords and to fight the enemy and to die by the thousands in battle. So this is not just a, you know, uh, it, 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 it impacts men and women, this, this world. And then there's the, the aspect, like I said, of Esther and Mordecai being pretty strategic in what they're doing and not standing up. I mean, we've got a Daniel who's willing to go to his death. Esther and Mordecai are not willing to go to their deaths at all. In fact, they're just the opposite. And she's portrayed as being skillful. Skillful at winning people's favor. Um, not like Daniel, who just kind of keeps moving up the ranks because not only does he work hard, but it says God intervenes time and time again to make it happen. Same thing with Joseph. God intervenes by bringing situations um, to play. And so you understand why I said, last week I think I said, maybe before that, talking about the series, this is, this is, in Cosper's words, this is more Game of Thrones than Veggie Tales. This is, a, this is a pretty brutal world, pretty brutal story. Here's the last one, the last sign, and this is really, this is a sign that we are lost. We are spiritually lost. We lose connection with God. And that's tragic because our God is a relational God, and he's a personal God. It's how he reveals himself from the beginning of Bible to the very end. Um, He's relational within himself. He creates us in his image, 
to be relational beings. And that's why he creates, after Adam, he creates Eve, because it's not good for Adam to be alone. And the most tragic disconnect, I mean, we oftentimes think, oh, you know, the most tragic disconnect is be disconnected from your kids or from your parents or from your spouse or from your best friend when things fall apart. That's not the most tragic. The most tragic disconnect is be disconnected from the God who created us and loves us. Mordecai and Esther are disconnected from God. This is the only, remember, this is the only book in the Bible that God is not mentioned once, not at all, not on, the, not on the lips of any of the players in the story, not in the words of the person who's narrating. God is not to be seen. It doesn't mean that he's not at work. It doesn't mean that you can't look and go, oh, there are unseen forces working here. Yes, and we'll talk about that. But God in his sovereignty includes a book like Esther with these completely compromised Jewish man and a woman being the heroes of the story, and includes it in his canon so that the Jewish people had this as one of their sacred books and so that the, the Christians, so we, we Christians have it as part of our sacred book. And you got to wonder why. <laughs> and, uh, and the Bible doesn't tell us why, but if you really look at Esther in light of the whole story, which is how you have to look at it, Esther in light of the whole story, it's not justifying what they did. It's telling what happened in light of the bigger story. When you do that, there are some reasons why Esther is in the Bible. And I'll just go over these really quickly because I'm out of time. One is the Bible never hides the reality of the human condition or the weaknesses of its heroes, never. The Bible, secondly, communicates a message of grace from beginning to end. And what it communicates is that our sin and failure and compromise doesn't put us beyond the reach of God's grace. And if you think that you are beyond the reach of God's grace, then you just don't know the person who's sitting right next to you, their secret sins. The Bible, three, is a story of redemption, and Esther demonstrates how God redeems even our sins and failures and com compromises. In other words, he even uses the sins that we commit as part of his plan. He's able to do that. Story of redemption. And finally, in the Bible story, it's clear. Ultimately, Esther and Mordecai are not the heroes. Neither is King David, neither is Abraham, neither is Paul, neither is Peter. The ultimate hero is Jesus. And Jesus taught his disciples that, that everything is about him and pointing to him. And so I love the story since we started about names. I love this story told by a pastor, Philip Griffin, and he says, I saw a sign once that I love, a lost dog sign, and there was a big cash reward for whoever found that lost dog. And here was the description of the dog. Here's how you'll know you found that lost dog. He's only got three legs. He's blind in the left eye. He's missing a right ear. His tail has been broken off. He was neutered accidentally by a fence. He's almost deaf, and he answers by the name Lucky. <laughs> and so this pastor says, you know, on the one hand, he's, that's not a lucky dog. On the other hand, wow, what a lucky dog. His master loves him that much <laughs> that he's looking for him. And that's the story of Esther. And that's our story. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for being a God that pursues us, a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of, of infinite, overwhelming love. You understand us. Uh, you don't excuse us, but you pay a price for us. 
you are willing to suffer for our, for our sins, for, for our rebellion. So we thank you, Father. And we thank you that we're here today because of you, because you pursue us, because you love us, you care for us. It's an amazing thing, just absolutely amazing. So Father, help us to respond to that as we continue our worship. I pray for anyone here today who feels so far from you because of their own sin or their own compromise, that they feel that they have, that they're far, that they are, they're out of the reach of your grace. I pray that they would reach out for your grace today and receive it. Maybe for the first time, maybe once again in their lives and live by that grace. I pray for all of us to live by your grace. I pray this in Jesus' name.